Unfortunately, we're all getting older and age is the number one risk factor for breast cancer, which have to wrap our head around that. It is what it is. Um, certainly reproductive factors. So prolonged estrogen exposure over the course of our lives is a risk factor. So when I see a patient, I do ask about things like age of menarche, is she still menstruating? Has she ever been pregnant? If so, how many times did she ever take any you know, exogenous hormones, such as hormone replacement therapy, et cetera. So we ask all of these questions of our patients. We ask about family history, of course, which is so important. We ask about prior breast biopsies. Some biopsies may indicate benign findings, but may unfortunately increase, suggest an increased risk for breast cancer. But lifestyle factors are also really key. And so I know we're both really interested in this. Welcome to the Plant-Based DFW Podcast Weekly Show with Dr. Riz and Maya. A show broadcasted from the Dallas-Fort Worth area that focuses on lifestyle medicine. This is the use of evidence-based lifestyle therapeutic approaches, such as a whole food plant-based diet, regular physical exercise, adequate sleep, and stress management to treat, prevent, and oftentimes reverse lifestyle-related chronic diseases that are all too prevalent. Every week, they feature a guest who speaks on one of these lifestyle medicine pillars. This show is for you, the person who is seeking to improve your overall wellness and quality of life. So whether you are driving, walking, or relaxing at home, we hope this show will provide you one more tool for your wellness toolbox. Let's meet today's podcast guest. Dr. Amy Commander is a hematologist-oncologist who specializes in the care of women with breast cancer. She received her undergraduate degree and a master's degree in biology at Harvard University. She received her medical degree at Yale University School of Medicine. She completed her internal medicine residency training in hematology oncology fellowship training at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Her interests include finding new treatments for breast cancer and helping her patients achieve and maintain a healthy lifestyle after a breast cancer diagnosis. She is also board certified in lifestyle medicine. And in this episode, we will talk about the various subtypes of breast cancer treatments, as well as support for survivors. We will talk about breast cancer incidents. We will also learn about the role that lifestyle medicine plays in reducing your risk for breast cancer, but also in reducing the risk for recurrence in current survivors. So I hope that you enjoy this episode. Remember to get your annual screening and also let's welcome Dr. Amy Commander. Thank you. Thank you for your kind introduction. I would love to know as we move forward, um, the steps, everything from when an individual is diagnosed with say a mass or a lump, all the way through what you really work in is um, empowering and supporting survivors. And then also if we can talk about how lifestyle medicine plays a role in all of this in either the prevention or the recurrence of um, breast cancer. So before we move on to all of that, can you tell us more about yourself, where are you originally from and some of your interests? Thank you. I'm so excited to be with you during this interview. So thank you for this wonderful opportunity. I'm always happy to provide education about breast cancer and also the role of lifestyle medicine. So getting back to me. So I grew up in the South, actually. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. 
Um, I lived there from age five until I graduated from high school. And then I was really excited to branch out. And that's how I ended up in Boston, which is behind me, the beautiful skyline. So I was um, an undergrad, as you noted, at Harvard and loved it there. And actually, my focus in college was neuroscience and psychology and cognitive science. And I think a lot of those interests are very much um, still with me as I practice oncology and develop programs for breast cancer survivors. I went to medical school at Yale, and actually that's where I discovered my interest in oncology and decided that I'd pursue internal medicine and eventually um, become an oncologist. And so I'm back in Boston now where I've been probably gosh, for a while now, practicing breast oncology at the MGH Cancer Center. And one of my passions, as you noted, is also optimizing survivorship care for women with breast cancer. And you're also a marathoner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I'm happy to talk about that too for an hour if you want. So um, one of my passions is running. And it is definitely something I've done since high school. I was never a competitive runner. Um, I was never fast or anything like that, but I've always done running throughout college, medical school, and certainly um, now as a way for exercise and also to help calm my mind. You know, running is like a moving meditation. Um, And so, yes, I discovered marathon running, gosh, in 2000, I want to say 2013. um, And... Um, My favorite is the Boston Marathon, and I've been running it for the past seven years for charity, including the virtual Boston Marathon last September, which was quite an experience. And I was really grateful to run that marathon with another um, colleague of mine who's a leukemia specialist at MGH. So, yes, so that is definitely a true passion of mine and encouraging others to get excited about exercise. Definitely. Do you have any marathons coming up soon? Funny that you should ask. (laughs) Given the pandemic, there's been many challenges for racing, as you know, but it looks like there will be a Boston Marathon on October 11th, um, an in-person and a virtual race for people who might want to run it virtually. So um, I'm planning to run that for a charity that I'm passionate about called the Ellie Fund, which supports women newly diagnosed with breast cancer here in Massachusetts. Oh, congratulations Thank on, you. you know, doing this physical exercise for your own health, but then you're supporting other groups as well. That's wonderful. Well, just a quick question about the virtual experience with your marathon. Is Does that mean that you're running in your own location, but then you're logging in the miles? So how do Yeah, so anyone can run the virtual Boston Marathon anywhere in the world and actually get a medal this year. So it's super exciting. Um, and so there's that, that's what the virtual option would mean. When I ran it last September, my colleague and friend was running her very first Boston that she had trained for, obviously for April, but it got postponed because of the pandemic. So we actually did go out to Hopkinton. That's the starting line, by the way. And we started there and ran our 26.2 miles into Boston. So she would have the real experience. And every step along the way, I tried to tell her what it was really like to run Boston and try to remain positive for her, which I joke with everyone. I remained positive for her for 25.5 miles. That last 0.7, maybe not so much. (laughs) (laughs) That's when we're both hurting a lot. (laughs) Right. Oh, that sounds like a wonderful experience. Uh, You will perhaps be coming to close to the Dallas area to lecture for the Lifestyle Medicine Conference. Is that something that we might still be able to look forward to? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I obviously we're all hopeful for the return of in-person conferences as soon as it as it's safe. And um, I'm really looking forward to hopefully being there in person. But if not, you know, the virtual conference is, you know, certainly a compromise at this challenging time. Okay, so um, can we get started by you kind of explaining a little bit just in case some of our, our listeners are not aware of what a hematologist oncologist is. I know that in the treatment of breast cancer, you have, you know, the breast surgeon, and then you have the radiologist who's a radio, what is it, radiation oncologist, and you have just a whole team. Uh, but what is specifically your role? Sure. Um, so just to start off, why, why I agree with you that this topic is so important. You know, we recently got statistics for um, the numbers of cancers that will be diagnosed in the United States for 2021. And actually for breast cancer, breast cancer is the leading cause of cancer in women in the United States. And there's estimated um, it'll be about 280,000 cases diagnosed this year. So this topic is very important. So I'm glad we're talking about it. Um, so in terms of breast, there's a multidisciplinary team, as you just noted, um, that is assembled to care for a patient newly diagnosed with breast cancer. Usually the patient may see a breast surgeon first. And after that, often, or sometimes we see them all together in a multidisciplinary clinic, which would mean a patient is seen by the breast surgeon, um, the radiation oncologist, and by a medical oncologist, which is what I do. Um, and often, you know, there's so many other specialties involved, a genetic counselor, social worker, you know, there's so many other members of our team, which are so key. And together we meet, we review the imaging, the pathology, talk with the patient um, about her diagnosis and outline a treatment plan. You kind of just explained a little bit, which was one of my questions of what are the steps that people take from the time that, you know, they, they have the initial screening. So they either go to their OB-GYN or the primary physician and schedule a mammogram. You might show in the initial mammogram that there's a mass or a lump, then they move forward to the next thing, the diagnosis and other things. Can you kind of guide us briefly through that? Yeah, that's a great question. I do want to put a plug in for screening because one of the unfortunate consequences of the pandemic is that cancer screenings are way down. And in particular, breast cancer screenings, certainly um, last year and those th spring months when the, you know there was a you know essentially a lockdown, mammograms were canceled unless there was an urgent indication. So we are still catching up. Um, there was a recent article in the New York Times demonstrating, unfortunately, that there are more diagnoses of advanced cancers now, sadly, because of this decline in screening. So I'm so glad we're getting out this message, especially to women. Please get your mammogram. So important. Um, and so that's a great question. What age should that start? You know, certainly... I'd say for women in their 30s, they should start discussing with their gynecologist or their primary care physician, you know, what their risk factors may be in terms of family history of breast cancer, other risk factors. So some women may start at age 40. If a woman truly has no risk factors, it would be reasonable to start at age 45 with annual mammographic screening. Some women may require more intensive screening with breast MRI, and that really depends on other risk factors that I'm noting most importantly, family history. Um, but your real question was, okay, so let's say a woman has her mammogram, they find something, what are the next steps? And so really the next step is really a biopsy, which is done by the radiologist. Um, and then we, you know, await the pathology. And if it 
pathology does reveal a diagnosis of cancer, then often the patient would be referred as a next step to a breast surgeon. Um, and sometimes the patient may see a breast surgeon alone, or sometimes, you know, at, at MGH, we see many of our patients in a multidisciplinary clinic where the patient sees not just the breast surgeon, but also a radiation oncologist and a medical oncologist, the whole team at once, which is pretty amazing for a newly diagnosed patient. And then we figure out the next steps. Sometimes surgery is the next step to remove the primary cancer, or sometimes there may be other treatments that are indicated as the first step, such as chemotherapy, um, which is something I would administer. So as you can see, it's a multidisciplinary approach, which is so important for formulating a treatment plan for a woman newly diagnosed with breast cancer. Thank you for explaining that. It's so important to focus on screening every year. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, in preparing for our, our conversation today, I kind of um, messaged all the women in my family and, and, and basically asked, do you get a yearly mammogram? And so I was really pleased to hear some of the women in my family said yes. And one, one sister said every January, you know, it's like, just like how we want to check our labs when we're, uh, you know, consuming plant-based foods and we want to make sure that we're okay. It's like, well, just do the mammogram as well. Absolutely. So important. And so I'm so glad that you reached out because I tell my patients that too, you know, now that you have this diagnosis, please reach out to your close friends and family members and make sure they're getting their mammogram because especially right now during this pandemic, um, we're not all paying attention to our own self-care, which is so important. Now, I've heard you say that there are different types of breast cancer. Can you touch on that as well? Sure. So I think that's a really important question. So thank you for asking. Um, certainly in the media, we hear breast cancer, like that's the term or another celebrity has breast cancer, but breast cancer is not one disease. Breast cancer is actually many diseases. There's many different subtypes of breast cancer. So when I see a patient, I will help her sort of break this down so the patient understands specifically what type of breast cancer she has. And some of the really the key um, factors that we need to look at are something called the grade of the tumor, which refers to the what the cells look like under the microscope, the architecture of the cells, and the hormone receptors. Is the tumor driven or influenced by the female hormones, estrogen and progesterone? Um, and is the tumor driven by a gene called HER2 or HER2, which can encode a protein that basically HER2 positive cancers comprise about 15 to 20% of breast cancers in this country. So these are some of the features we look at, the hormone receptors, the HER2 status, the grade, of course, other factors such as the size, et cetera. But that really, all of these features are very important to the team in terms of evaluating a patient with a new diagnosis of breast cancer. So you mentioned, I think, uh, you know, the genetic um, component of it. Should we be running out and get in, you know, having this genetic testing to see if we have the BRAC gene or anything, any other gene that can put us at risk? Such a great question. Another interest of mine, of course. So um, it's really important for women to know that there are genes that can confer an increased risk for breast cancer. But I think it's also important to know of the 280,000 breast cancers diagnosed this year, only about five to 10% are going to be due to a gene that we currently in 2021 can test for. So only five to 10%. And of that five to 10%, probably half of them will be due to what you just said, the BRCA gene or BRCA1 and BRCA2. Those are the names of them. So 
Um, I think what's that's a great question. Should every woman be tested? There is debate about that at our conferences. Some would argue, yes, every woman should be tested. Currently, we do have specific guidelines for who should be tested. I think every woman should be aware of her family history. And certainly if there's certain criteria in a family history, that would indicate the need for testing, such as having a family member who is diagnosed with breast cancer under age 50, or if there's a male family member with breast cancer, if there's a strong family history of multiple breast cancers, ovarian cancer, certain ethnicities such as women of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, these features are all really important um, when you know PCPs and OBGYNs and family medicine doctors and other healthcare providers are taking history from a woman just to figure out, hmm, does this patient meet criteria for genetic testing? And these guidelines are well outlined, you know, um, in various resources that can help um, various practitioners determine if their patients should be referred for genetic testing. It's good to know that there is some debate within the industry as to whether this should happen or not. I read in one of the abstracts that you sent me that about 40% of the uh, cancer incidents here in the United States are really related to lifestyle. Yeah, there's so many factors that can play a role in why a woman may be diagnosed with breast cancer. And obviously, this is still an area of active research. And, you know, we all want to understand when we see a patient, why did this patient get breast cancer? Many times we do not have an explanation. It's a very complicated conversation in my clinic, you know, for a woman who has no family history, who's, you know, been getting her mammograms every year, like, why did this happen? And so I think, there are certain factors that we do know play a role, such as age. Unfortunately, we're all getting older and age is the number one risk factor for breast cancer, which have to wrap our head around that. It is what it is. Um, certainly reproductive factors. So prolonged estrogen exposure over the course of our lives is a risk factor. So when I see a patient, I do ask about things like age of menarche, is she still menstruating? Has she ever been pregnant? If so, how many times did she ever take any, you know, exogenous hormones such as hormone replacement therapy, et cetera. So we ask all of these questions of our patients. We ask about family history, of course, which is so important. We ask about prior breast biopsies. Some biopsies may indicate benign findings, but may unfortunately increase, suggest an increased risk for breast cancer, but lifestyle factors are also really key. And so I know we're both really interested in this. And in the United States, I think we all have to acknowledge that one of the major lifestyle factors that contributes not only to breast cancer, but to many other cancer diagnoses um, is obesity. We have an obesity epidemic in the United States. And, you know, I read a recent statistic, I think, on the American Cancer Society website that now obesity may potentially contribute to 11% of new cancer diagnoses in this country. So, you know, I know as both of us are interested in lifestyle medicine, this is an area that we all need to work together to focus on to help, um, you know, help everyone be at a healthy body weight. So body weight is a risk factor, um, particularly I should say for postmenopausal breast cancer. I should give that caveat. That's where the data is the strongest for postmenopausal breast cancer. Um, other factors, alcohol intake. I mean, nobody likes to hear this, but like alcohol is a risk factor for breast cancer and, and many other cancers. So if one wanted to be, you know, American Cancer Society specifically says alcohol is a risk factor for cancer. It is best not to drink at all. But if you want to drink or, you know, women should really limit it to one alcoholic beverage per day. 
Um, and then physical activity is another big one, which I know we're both interested in as well. And um, regular physical activity is felt to also be associated with a lower risk of breast cancer. That's kind of part of the program as well that you developed with Dr. Beth Frades in terms of, you know, not only continuing to offer support for survivors, but also just in general to help prevent breast cancer or at the risk of developing breast cancer. Can you tell us just a little bit more about how obesity plays a role? So that's a really interesting question. So how does obesity increase the risk of postmenopausal breast cancer? What is the mechanism? So many smart scientists and obviously epidemiologists and many other researchers are truly trying to answer this question. Um, and getting to that point, when I mentioned that there's, you know, in this recent publication, looking at the breast cancer, all cancer incidents in the United States for um, 2021, the incidence of breast cancer actually is going up 0.5% each year. And one of the possible reasons is obesity and perhaps delayed fertility in this country. But so we really need to pay attention to obesity. I know we both agree about that. So in terms of mechanisms, I mean, you already gave some great examples of things that are being researched. Excess estrogen, we know that adipose or fat tissue um, has the enzyme aromatase, which is responsible for um, converting androgens into estrogen. So excess adipose tissue likely pro providing excessive estrogen is one mechanism. Another mechanism you mentioned was, you know, is there something related to other hormones such as insulin-like growth factors, et cetera? Is there some kind of metabolic state in the body in individuals who are obese that potentially can also explain increased risk for breast cancer? And I think this is a really interesting area of research. And then also there's been studies looking at breast tissue and looking at the biology of the breast tissue itself. And there may be, you know, signs of inflammatory mediators in the breast tissue itself when there's excessive adipose tissue that potentially can explain this. So I think we're still trying to learn the mechanisms. It's a really interesting and active area of research. Um, same with alcohol, like how is alcohol increasing risk of breast cancer? And certainly many studies in animal models and trying to figure out what alcohol is actually doing at a cellular level, but likely also related to hormonal fluctuations, inflammation, direct toxicity to the cells um, in the breast tissue. I think we're still trying to understand this better. Okay, so obesity, uh, alcohol intake, diet in general, um, and also exercise. There are a variety of different breast cancer types. And then so, and can we talk about treatments? And then I have also heard you speak about, which I found very interesting for chemotherapy. It might be for chemotherapy to prevent uh, hair loss. It's the scalping. So just sort of a general thing about treatment. So obviously the treatment for breast cancer is complicated and really, as we already talked about, a, we take a multidisciplinary approach at the MGH Cancer Center when we see a new patient and breast surgeon, radiation oncologist, medical oncologist, we all put our heads together to formulate a treatment plan. And then, um, and so it really depends on the subtype of breast cancer, but I can generally say that tumors that overexpress estrogen and progesterone, which by the way, that's a good prognostic factor if a woman's breast cancer is hormonally sensitive. We, we like to see that but those women will benefit, you know, after surgery from anti-estrogen medications. I know, you know, part of tamoxifen, another class of drugs we use are called aromatase inhibitors. So those are very important in terms of lowering risk of disease recurrence, lowering risk of a new breast cancer and improving overall survival. So 
Anti-estrogen treatments such as tamoxifen, so important. Sometimes chemotherapy is needed and um, we both know that that can cause a lot of side effects and there are tips from lifestyle medicine that can really help our patients tolerate chemotherapy and get through that. But one thing is hair loss you mentioned. So it is, you know, sometimes when I tell a patient about the side effects from chemo, of course, like the worst thing is losing one's hair. Like let's acknowledge like many women will be like nausea, whatever, fatigue, whatever, but my hair, like that is bad, you know? And we can all relate to that. So one really exciting thing over the past few years is the use of scalp cooling. And you know, you might say, what is that? Basically, it's what it sounds like. Um, a woman wears a cap that like freezes her scalp, um, certainly for a period of time before chemo, during the treatment and after the treatment. And it, in many cases, not all, but in many cases can um, prevent hair loss, which is a game changer and so wonderful for so many of our patients in terms of quality of life and actually just, you know, feeling so much better about oneself going through treatment if one doesn't have to lose their hair. And there's many different companies that provide this service at the MGH Cancer Center. We work with Paxman Scalp Cooling and love them, but there are many other companies and certainly um, ways that women can do it themselves if their cancer center might not offer that. There's various companies can provide it to the patient directly so she can take it to her cancer center. So that's pretty, pretty cool. Sorry for the pun. No, <laughs> it is pretty cool. Um, again, I wish it worked for every chemo regimen and maybe someday we will be in a situation where we have options for women with who receive some drugs that it doesn't work as well. But for many regimens, it's been a game changer. I know for many of my patients that, you know, there's so much support out there through various types of social media, et cetera. So many of my patients learn about these options through those types of groups or through their research, or maybe you know, at cancer centers, they have partnered with a specific company, like in our case, Paxman, but you know, at another cancer center, they may be working with a different company that provides that kind of service for their patients. So okay. we're very fortunate to have it in Boston. I know it's probably not available everywhere, but there are ways that women can research this and investigate it if it awesome. may work for their particular regimen. So we talked about treatments, and now we're going to talk about something that you're very passionate about, and that's survivorships, where you create support and, um, and you continue to uh, offer resources for cancer survivors. And so you developed a program um, called the Paving the Path to Wellness for Breast Cancer Survivors with Dr. Beth Frades, um, who wrote the Lifestyle Medicine Handbook. And I'll show it because I, I always like to kind of brag that I have a copy and I love it. And anybody can buy this. I think it's available on Amazon. So I'm, I'm a believer of uh, self-empowerment and uh, knowledge and, and really teaching ourselves uh, the you know, all of these modalities that come from lifestyle medicine. Can you tell us what that is, the paving the path for, uh, to wellness? I love that you have Dr. Frady's book, by the way, it is awesome. And I also love that you use the word self-empowerment because that's essentially how I view this program. So um, many women will tell you after they go through their breast cancer treatment, which is so intense, right? Many appointments with their oncologist, their nurse practitioner, their chemo, their surgery, their radiation, like it's so intense for months. And then all of a sudden they're done. And maybe I'm like, here, start your tamoxifen and you'll see us in, you know, three months or four months or something like that. And the patient, you know, she's like, 
what I don't come back for three to four months like what do you mean and that's just like you know you're done with your primary treatment so you don't need to come back and so but the patient herself doesn't feel like she's done you know she might be feeling having significant fatigue she may still not be eating well she might not be sleeping well she may have some aches and pains related to the recent chemo she may still she doesn't have her hair back yet you know there's so many factors that a, you know a woman's experiencing when she finishes treatment and just to say see you in three months you know we can do better than that and we need to do better than that and so I was really fortunate it's funny to say to think back when it was but maybe like it might have been eight years ago I was I just happened to attend you know a Harvard Medical School course on lifestyle medicine out of my own personal interest as you know as a runner and that's where I met Dr. Frades, and she gave some amazing presentation about lifestyle medicine. And I talked to her afterwards, and I was thinking, wow, you know, these tools are so important and can really help our cancer survivors. We need to figure out a way to adapt these tools to help, you know, breast cancer survivors, which is my area that I focus on. And she was so excited to meet me as the way, that's the way she is. Um, she's so wonderful. And we met since at that time. And she told me about this amazing program she had developed for stroke survivors, because she's a physiatrist and um, works at the Spalding Rehabilitation Center here um, in Boston and had developed Paving the Path to Wellness for stroke survivors to help that population, you know, um, improve their health and wellness after something traumatic like a stroke. And so a lot of the tools that she used could really be easily adapted to a breast cancer survivor population. So PAVING is actually an acronym, physical activity, attitude, variety, investigations, nutrition, and goal setting. And then there's steps, but steps is two S's. So, <laughs> so it's stress management, timeouts, um, I want to make sure steps, energy, <laughs> purpose, um, sleep, and social connection. So as you can see, there's 12 steps of the program, and you can just tell that, wow, all of these are so important for all of us, but in particular, they can be so helpful to focus on for um, a cancer survivor. So I've been fortunate to collaborate with her, as well as with Dr. Michelle Tolufson, who you may know as well from the Lifestyle Medicine Organization. And we've developed this program for women with breast cancer, and I'm currently offering it, actually, I initially offered it in person at our hospital and we had dinner together and it was very interactive um, and so wonderful. But during the pandemic, like all of us, we were forced to enter the virtual world. And so I remember like literally March of last year figuring like, oh my God, I need to set up a Zoom account. How do I use Zoom? <laughs> I don't even know how to do it. Like it was honestly new to me, but thankfully I figured it out with the help of my 10 year old son. And, um, and so now I've been running it virtually and it's um, been a really rewarding experience, certainly for me, but also for the participants. Some of the survivors are actually finding that they're even more connected and more available for one another because they don't have to travel, worry about parking and finding the location and all of that. They're just able to come together and continue to offer support uh, to one another. It's so interesting that you say that. Like I can tell you with my first paving group, 
the women really bonded with one another. And then they kept meeting on their own without me or a social worker or anyone from our group and formed this really special connection with each other. So when I started the virtual group in the spring of last year and the height of the pandemic here in Boston, it was crazy, but we kept it going. Those women, despite being on a screen together, really bonded and they're continuing to meet together as well. And they're, it's just really fabulous. Um, I don't, you know, it's interesting. Like it's certainly, there's a lot of benefits, right? You don't have to leave your house. You can be in your pajamas if you want to. Your kids can be running around. You don't have to worry about childcare, like that kind of thing. Um, there, I think are real advantages. I mean, of course, meeting in person has major advantages as well. And I like yep. giving dinner, but, um, <laughs> but I use, there are some fun things. I'm sure you've, because of being on Zoom so much, you know, breakout rooms, the chat box, other ways to make it interactive and fun. And I feel like, I'm getting more of a hang of it now. And I think there are ways to really get people to bond even on a screen. So it's been working out well, but I will look forward to when we can actually do things in person again. Now, I know you have kind of uh, an interest in psychiatry and this program itself kind of offers this positive psychology aspect to it as well of really um, focusing on overall wellness, staying positive, finding support, and also um, connectivity. And so that myself feel, I really believe that that's what cancer survivors need, is there always this fear that lies there that the, um, that the cancer might return? Yeah, such tough questions. And you're so right. I think, first of all, it's so, no one ever wants to hear the words, you have cancer. It's very um, we, I mean, telling a patient that it's very difficult, certainly for me to tell a patient that, but then if I put myself in her shoes, I see how you know traumatic it is to hear those words. And I think everyone certainly handles that information in different ways, as we both know. And certainly I'm sure you have friends and family, you know, I hope not too many, but like who have had been through something like this. So some people choose to be very private and don't really want to share with anyone except their immediate family. And some are very much wide open about it and you know want to be in groups and want to share and want to you know post about it to share their experience. So I think everyone's different. Um, but I do think thinking about what you just said about shaking someone's hand and how you're like, can I shake this person's hand? Like the social connection piece is so important for all of us. And I think especially after a cancer diagnosis, having that support from others who really understand what you're going through and what's going through your mind late at night, like you just said, fear, anxiety, stress. Like, you know, I think the social connection part that's evolving from, for example, from the paving program or other support groups that are out there is so beneficial to people. And they may not realize it at the outset, but once they are in a program like that, they really see the significant benefits. And I've heard that feedback from many of the women who've been in my program, like, I'm so glad they did the program, but actually I think the best gift I gave them was like that they met these other people that they're continuing to meet with on their own for that really important social support piece. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. So uh, let's talk about this educational initiative kind of uh, work that you've been doing to reach out to even a greater number of women. Yes, I think that's an important thing for all of us as women to know that again, Let's just state the facts. Breast cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in the United States, and there'll be 280,000 cases this year. I will say that looking at that recent publication, um, um, that thankfully our treatments for breast cancer have improved dramatically over the past, you know, 
four decades actually with significant improvements in survival from breast cancer. So I want to express that we've made great strides, you know, screening advances and of course advances in treatment. But yes, um, each woman walking down the street has a one in eight lifetime risk. And as one gets older, that risk does, you know, go up just because of aging. I mean, the risk for any kind of cancer pretty much goes up as we get older. So I think for your listeners, screening, so important. If you have missed your mammogram, especially because of the pandemic, please schedule it after you listen to this. <laughs> um, if you have a strong family history of breast cancer or ovarian cancer, or if you're of Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, talk to your gynecologist or PCP, should I see a genetic counselor? Because genetic testing is important to help us figure out if other screening modalities such as breast MRI should be used. And then think about your lifestyle. And I know this is something we're both really interested in. And the American Cancer Society, you can go on their website, has very clear guidelines for steps we can all take to lower our risk of breast cancer. So these are actionable things we can do. Um, and there's actually a paper with references if some of your listeners like to get into the nitty gritty details, but really I'm just gonna go over them now. Doing our best to be at a healthy body weight. I know this is a challenge, especially during the pandemic. Many of my own patients are like, well, I've gained the COVID-19, you know, like it's not funny. Like it's really a problem now because many of us are sedentary working from home, can't go to the gym. So we all have to be kind to ourselves. We just went, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, but like, let's try our best to, you know, try to get back to being at a healthy body weight. That's so important. Physical activity is so important, you know, what are the guidelines? 150 minutes of moderate aerobic activity each week. You don't have to go out and run a marathon. You know, you can do 10 minute walks throughout the week and that adds up to 150. So important, not just for cancer prevention, but for cardiovascular health, preventing other chronic diseases. Um, healthy eating. I know this is a passion of yours as well. Eat those fruits and vegetables, <laughs> those whole grains, those legumes limit the red meat, limit the processed meat, you know, supplements do not prevent cancer. I think that's another important message. Um, limiting alcohol, we kind of touched on this earlier. Um, women really should limit alcohol to no more than one drink per day. And then another really interesting part of the guideline, which you will like, given the work that you do is community support, helping the community adopt healthy habits you know, commu the communities we live in play such an important role in our health behaviors. Like, is there access to healthy food? Is there a safe place to go take that walk outside? Like, so the community support and infrastructure is also really important. That's actually part of the American Cancer Society guidelines now, the recent guidelines that were published last year. Thank you for that, especially emphasizing community because it's so difficult, but just as you explained with your paving program, it's successful right now virtually. Um, so what can we expect? The American College of Lifestyle Medicine's annual conference it will take place not far from us in Dallas um, in November, and you will be part of it in terms of offering a lecture specifically on women's health. Can you kind of give us a glimpse of what to expect for that? I know I'm so excited about this opportunity and I really hope I get to visit your city and see you in person. That would be really wonderful. Um, it's been a long time since I've been in Dallas, but I, I do go to San Antonio actually, well, not last year, but every other year because we have a major breast cancer meeting called the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium every December in San Antonio. But anyway, um, so I'm so honored to have the opportunity to speak at the ACLM conference. And, you know, I haven't 
you know, made my talk yet, but I'm thinking I'll talk a lot about the relevance of lifestyle medicine for women with regard to prevention of breast cancer, and then how we can support women during treatment, during the survivorship phase, and our patients who have advanced breast cancer. What does the data and evidence from lifestyle medicine um, say to help support not just quality of life and function, but also overall outcome from breast cancer in these populations. So I'm really excited to talk about that, but I welcome your feedback if those are good topics. Definitely. Well, okay, so I'm a lay person and I'm able to attend the conference, right? So it's pretty much open to anyone who's interested in really, again, self-empowerment and learning about these different modalities or pillars of lifestyle medicine, you know, further dive into it. Um, when we've gone, my husband and I split up and we try to go to various different uh, lectures so that then we can come back and share notes and um, insights as to what we learned. So I enjoy conferences and I'm looking forward to it as well. Um, do you have any kind of other online programs that, uh, that are coming up or any kind of video that our listeners can view? Um, I saw that you had one, you were part of an online, and I think it's offered through the, the medical center where you're at, uh, fight cancer with your fork, and it was on mindful eating. Do you have more programs like that? Or can you tell us about this one? That particular talk was so much fun. I was honored <laughs> to collaborate with two of our amazing MGH Cancer Center nutritionists who I'm so privileged to work with. And I learn from them every single day, um, Carol Sullivan and Samantha Bateman. And that video is there's been a lot of views. I think that just it's an attestation to how much interest there is in learning about nutrition as it relates to cancer prevention and survivorship. So that was a really fun one. And certainly I would love to work with them on more talks in the future because I think it's such an interesting topic. What am I working on now? Well, the current paving group is going on with virtually, but it is trying to keep it small. It's actually a little bigger than I want it to be, but um, but that's one thing we're trying to keep a little small. Um, I feel like in this pandemic, I've been planning so many virtual kind of webinars for related to cancer related topics. I am working on one in end of April to the MGH Cancer Center with my colleague, Hannah Shevsky, who's a music therapist. You'll find this interesting. Yes. We have music therapy at the MGH Cancer Center. She is so gifted and talented and has helped so many of my patients manage stress, insomnia, fatigue, you know, helping them exercise just by introducing them how music can help with these particular issues. So we are working together to talk about cancer-related fatigue, which is actually the number one sort of symptom experienced by cancer survivors on um, fatigue. I mean, fatigue is just so common and there's so many um, different factors that can contribute to that, unfortunately. So we're looking forward to that to the end of April through the MDH Cancer Center. And then we're planning some for June too, but I don't have the exact dates yet. Okay. Oh, and you know, I forgot to ask about men. Uh, so we know that men can also have breast cancer. When should they start screening? How do they know if they are at risk at all? Is it the same thing as, you know, what women would Great face? Great question. So Male breast cancer is certainly rare. Um, in the United States, there are about 5,000 cases per year. And you know, currently we do not screen men for, for breast cancer per se, but I think men should know, if there's men listening to this, that men can get breast cancer. So just like we encourage women to be aware of their bodies and you know, 
do a self breast exam, you know, maybe once a month, just pay attention, like men should as well, like pay attention to their chest wall, and how that feels because most breast cancers in men are identified by a man palpating a lump, or maybe the primary care when listening to a man's heart will be like, hmm, there's a little lump there, you know, so I think it's really awareness of one's body, which is true for men and women, but we currently do not recommend mammographic screening for men. Um, getting back to your genetics question earlier, because male breast cancer is more of a rare diagnosis, any man with breast cancer, any age, 40, 80 years old, whatever the age, should have genetic testing because there's at least a one in 10 chance that he would potentially carry a BRCA one or two mutation. So that's another important part of family history. If a woman's like, oh, my father had breast cancer or my uncle had breast cancer. Like, you know, it's important for the PCP or gynecologist to explore that further to see if genetic testing had been done. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because I, you know, when we wonder, should women test, um, get genetic testing? Well, for men, it is recommended, like you said. Um, so many topics to touch on. I had a list of myths, but I've heard you talk about kind of go through them before. And a lot of them continue to be myths. What you addressed earlier um, are more important, like whether you've had hormone replacement therapy that can impact your risk as well as early menarche, um, but other things like breast implants and deodorants and uh, underwire bras, those kind of things from what we know of today, do not play a role in the risk of developing breast cancer. Is that right? Correct. We don't have yeah. definitive evidence for that. That is correct. Okay, cool. And then, oh, um, I wonder if you can touch a little bit on soy. It's always this controversial topic. And it um, in the past, when we held in-person events, we were always asked about soy. Um, but can you explain just for our listeners what phytoestrogens are and if soy is still okay to consume? Yeah, that's a great question that often comes up. So soy um, is a, obviously a plant-based estrogen, also known as a phytoestrogen. And there is this, you know, concern that ingesting soy would potentially increase risk of breast cancer or potentially increase risk of breast cancer recurrence in somebody who's had breast cancer. And the data actually does not suggest that. Interestingly, in Asian countries, when there's a lot of soy consumption, like, you know, lots of tofu and other soy products, you know, there appears to be an association with a lower risk of breast cancer. And so, and certainly in the United States and in Western countries where this has been analyzed, it does not appear to be consistent with an increased risk of breast cancer or increased risk of recurrence. In fact, some studies suggest that soy consumption may be associated with a lower risk of breast cancer. So I think your listeners should not be fearful of soy. I usually tell my patients, however, you know, whole food soy products like edamame is okay, but don't buy the protein powder you know, at your grocery store, that soy protein, like concentrated protein powder, like, first of all, we can debate whether protein powder is a good thing or not. But like, I would avoid like concentrated soy, but thinking about whole food plant based sources of soy, um, such as edamame and things like that. So Dr. Commander, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners about breast health? First of all, this has been such a wonderful opportunity. I just want to thank you again. I just think you mentioned many of your listeners are women, and I just want women to know, especially at this challenging time of a pandemic, that your own self-care should be a priority. As women, we take care of others. We take care of our children, our spouse, other family members. We look out for our friends, but sometimes we neglect ourselves. Taking care of yourself should be a priority. Get your mammogram 
focus on the steps you can take to optimize your own health. And really that's my most important piece of advice for today. Thank you so much. And what is the best way that our listeners can learn more about you and your work? I'm working on a website, but for now I'm on Twitter, Amy Commander, and I'm on Instagram, Dr. Amy Commander. And um, I don't mind if folks want to reach out to me through those um, different types of social media, but um, eventually I'll have a website. A work in progress. We're all a work in progress, aren't we? Of course. <laughs> I appreciate you taking this time to teach us about breast health and, and how to reduce our risk for breast cancer. Thank you so much, Dr. Commander. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to the Plant-Based DFW podcast show. If you like our content, please like, share, and leave a review. Our goal is to provide quality episodes to help support the community.